probably once a week, I see a business book and I know I've got to read that book, a book about how the human brain works and why customers buy this or why customers are attracted to brands. The problem is that book would take me about eight hours to get through. Well, I've actually read a lot of those books and I created a webinar. It's a webinar about 45 minutes long and it's called Why Customers Buy. And it's a ton of the information that you would find in books like that, condensed, hassle-free, easy for you to watch. You'll walk away knowing how to position your product in such a way that people will pay attention. Here's what you're going to get if you watch this webinar. You're going to know exactly how to clarify your marketing. You're going to instantly connect with customers. You're going to become confident in your communication. You're going to capture people's attention. You are going to grow your business, and you're going to stand out from the competition. If you don't want the hassle of reading all those books, and you want information that you can use to make a tangible difference in your company, company, go to whycustomersbuy.com and register for this webinar, whycustomersbuy.com. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller, and I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hello. J.J., Yes. I have a proposal for you. Okay. Later today, I think we should talk about this podcast and where it's going and what we want it to look like. Uh-huh. I'm proposing that you and I go to Chipotle, grab a couple burritos, just okay. sit and talk, and yeah. you just pay, and we're going to have a great time, and we're going to figure and it out. A, and I pay. Yeah, yeah. If you just pay, <laughs> if you'd pay, what I want to uh-huh. do is I really want to talk about the podcast, uh-huh. and I want to, uh-huh. I just want to get that done. And if you'd pay, that would be great. That's my proposal. Okay, I mean that's a decent proposal. Yeah, but, um, it's the, lunch. It's a good. Well, it's a good yeah, burrito. but you know how Chipotle burrito. affects my tummy, so maybe we don't go to Chipotle, and maybe you pay. I like a lot of what I'm hearing uh-huh, there. The reason uh-huh. that I chose Chipotle is I remember you have a brother in California. You're really close to you. You love your brother. And I, I remember you telling a story once about how you guys went to Chipotle and you mm-hmm, paid. Mm-hmm. I know that your brother is not here. Yeah. And you and I are friends and uh-huh. you're like a brother. And that's why okay. I wanted kind of that emotional connection <laughs> to go into Chipotle and just having you pay the way uh, you would pay okay. for your brother. There's a deeper level I, of meaning to I, this. Okay. We'll go to Chipotle and I will pay. Thank and then you. That's you great. That's great. Get the you. next seven. Okay, this is falling apart <laughs> on me. This is not working the way I want it to work. You don't really want to mess with me when it comes to negotiating because I used to do all my Christmas shopping in Tijuana. And every time you go down there and I would get a sombrero from my brother and I would get a fake Rolex from my dad. You would get a sombrero from your brother. I did every year. Every year. um, Or actually, one year for all of my siblings, I got these lacquered frogs holding instruments. Everybody wants a lacquered frog. Yeah, it was like a lacquered frog that was holding a saxophone or a drum. <laughs> and you were eight and they would let you go to Tijuana no, and buy these no, things? They, my family still has these. They love them. But I would go to Tijuana every year and I would negotiate and I would get the gifts that I wanted for my whole family. I'm going to tell you yeah. something that's hard to hear right now. You said something. You said, my family still has them and they love them. This is <laughs> this is going to be hard for you to hear. Uh-huh. Your family does still have them. And when they know you're coming <laughs> over, they pull them, them out. <laughs> 
and they yeah. put yeah. them in places. Well, I, don't, I mean, they tell me they love them. So, uh, are you a good negotiator? Yes, I would say when it comes to getting what I want, I it will you know drive you a want. hard bargain. I usually feel guilty about it, but I, but I'm I'm willing to go for what I want. Like I just kind of set my standard of this is what I want, and I go for it. See, here's the thing: I used to negotiate before I met the gentleman that we're about to interview. Uh-huh. I would negotiate. This is what I want. If somebody came back and said, "No, I actually want it this way," I would say goodbye. That's how it's I negotiated. Done. There done. was no, there yeah, was no negotiation. I so I, I got what I wanted, but it just took a lot longer <laughs> yeah. to find the person. Yeah. That I didn't. You, it wasn't a chess game for me. Yeah. It was all cards on the table. You put your cards on the table, and not everybody negotiates that way. No. There were certain principles that did not work when I tried to negotiate our lunch. <laughs> and the first was that the opening bid sets the gravity of the negotiation. Uh-huh. So the opening bid is really important. Then John, and he's going to talk about this in the interview. I'll tell you who John is in just a second. He calls below the line. So he uh-huh. says, I want you to recognize the person that you're negotiating with is an emotional creature. There's psychological complexity, and it may not be about money. So I brought the thing up about your <laughs> My brother. brother. <laughs> <laughs> to try to get a burrito yeah. out of yes. you, and it didn't work. I think work. I'm more emotional about the burrito than my brother, maybe. So <laughs> I met your brother. He's a great guy. I love my brother. So, yeah. So these are actually techniques that John talks about. Yeah. But this is why it matters so much is because leaders, people who are listening to this podcast tend to be very effective people, high impact people, and they're having to negotiate every day. In fact, yeah. you will realize after you learn these principles of negotiation that you negotiate all the time. Yeah, everybody is a negotiator. Everybody's a negotiator. You might just be a really bad one. <laughs> yeah. And if you go, Don, I never have to negotiate anything. I'm telling you right now, no, you're just really bad. Yeah, you're you literally lost. not negotiating. <laughs> you're getting railroaded all the time. Yeah. Well, my interview this week is with Dr. John Lowry. He's president of the Lowry Group. That's a law firm that specializes in negotiation. They have settled some serious disputes. And John's dad, Randy, is the president of Lipscomb University. So yeah. they do own the Lowry Group, but they're all also president of Lipscomb University, and then John is vice president of developments, a yeah. father-son team. And Lipscomb is just booming. Oh, yeah. This, when you talk about development, that school is growing. They're spending $1 million a month in building new buildings, and all that money had to be raised, and the contracts had to be negotiated yeah, yeah. with contractors and homes that they're buying up and yeah. turning it into campus. It's just fascinating what these guys are able to get done. Dr. Lowry teaches the negotiation and settlement processes at the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution at Pepperdine University School of Law. U.S. News and World Report has ranked Strauss Institute as the number one dispute resolution program in the country for 11 consecutive <laughs> years. These Amazing. guys know what they're doing. They're yeah. building a university and on the side helping companies that are suing yeah. other companies not sue those <laughs> companies and get along. Yeah. And they teach a course on the side, kind of for fun, called Negotiation Navigation. And I found out about the course and my COO Tim and I signed up and we went for two days and learned how to negotiate from two crackerjack lawyers who were just <laughs> awesome and it was a blast and I loved it so much and uh, obviously a lot happened positively for me after I took this course that I just wanted to interview John and I said John would you summarize the points for our listeners would you help our listeners walk away from this podcast being absolute ninjas in negotiation <laughs> and he agreed to do it and so John came over to the house and we had a great conversation and he shares with you very strategic tips and strategies for negotiating, practical tips that you can use next time you have to negotiate just about anything. And this interview just boils everything down. This course you took, it boils everything down to really simple and usable 
Yes. Points. You will use this. Yes. And we have given our listeners a worksheet that they can also download in order to follow along and use in negotiating as well. And they can go to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet to download it. Yeah. John really knows his stuff and you're going to want to keep those notes close to you. Well, I don't want to wait any longer. Here's my interview with John Lowry. John, thanks for joining us. Hey, Don, I'm thrilled to be here. Man, I've been looking forward to this. I took your negotiation navigation course. I was shocked at how fun it was. I mean, you know, we're talking about negotiating contracts and all these kinds of things. We learned a lot from you in terms of making a course really interactive, and we would get together and talk about, you know, okay, this guy's trying to sell half a million dollars in sporting equipment, and you're trying to buy half a million dollars in sporting equipment. You guys figure it out based on these dynamics. And I felt like I was buying and selling businesses all day all day long in the room, which was a blast. Well, that's part of it. And one of the things that's really interesting is that adults learn by doing and talking, not by sitting and listening. Yep. And there's yep. a lot of research. And so we try to teach to that. And as part of that, yeah, there's a, a lot of work that goes on and people have a lot of fun with it. And by the end, uh, they either love each other or they hate each other, depending on how they did. <laughs> well, all I know is I walked away from that course and I immediately had to buy a uh, used riding lawnmower. I think I got it at half of what they were asking for. I think I paid like 800 bucks for the course, something like that. Saved about 300 on the lawnmower. So now my course is down to 500 bucks. And then you taught uh, this technique where, you know, if you're emotionally tied up and wanting something, that's a liability. You got to figure out how not to be so emotionally tied up with the thing. One technique is to go find other options that will decrease your level of emotion so that you don't get sideswiped or make a bad decision. So my wife and I were negotiating on some property. I really wanted this property, but there was another piece of property I wanted even more, but we couldn't afford it. So when we made an offer on property A, property B being the property I wanted, I just asked my real estate agent, hey, just go lowball this other piece of property. That way, at least I have two offers out there and I've at least checked something off my list in the negotiation navigation course and I'm doing things well. Turns out property B, they said, we like this offer. Let's sit down and talk. We got our dream piece of property. I paid $800 for your course. I got that property for $800,000 less than they were asking for it. And all because of you. Now, I shouldn't have told you that because you're the kind of guy to negotiate a royalty on that. But, I, but <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Well, it's, it's an interesting dynamic out there, Don, if you think about it. You, know, you never get what you don't ask for. Yeah. And just today, I had an example to where I was uh, negotiating a gift for Lipscomb University. And mm-hmm. I asked the donor for an additional million dollars. And after this donor had already committed several million, and it was amazing that his reaction was, well, if you need an additional million in order to get this off the ground, then let's go and let's do it. You know, we're talking about, I saved 800 grand. You got an additional million for Lipscomb University. We're going to talk about five techniques that you need to know if you're going to go into a negotiation. And there's a lot more techniques in your course, which is awesome. These five, I think, wonderful takeaway. Everybody should know them. But we're talking about making or losing, probably for everybody listening, hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe for some of you, millions and millions of dollars. And they're just basic techniques. And I even like one that you just said, you're not going to get it if you don't ask for it. Well, one of the things about negotiation is that it is consequential. And so how you do really matters. And uh, what we tell folks all the time is that your success is largely dependent upon how well you negotiate. Yeah. And this is a skill set that 
is by many have they've learned it on the job Mm -hmm. Uh, they've learned it through their experience but the reality is is there's a lot of professors and academic study that has been done into this process and what we know in terms of negotiation what we know in terms of psychology now what we know in terms of neuroscience there's a lot to it that can be mastered that is evidence-based that if people just spend a little bit of time thinking about it it's amazing how their success can grow exponentially. And, you know, I made the mistake of believing early on in my career that, you know, there were good negotiators and there were bad negotiators and you came out of the womb that way. Like every other area of my life, writing and leadership and all that kind of stuff, I knew all that those were skill sets and you could learn them. But negotiation is the same way. Everybody listening to this can become a much better negotiator if they understand a few principles and they practice those principles. Am I right? Absolutely. Uh, it doesn't matter in terms of personality. It doesn't matter in terms of background. It does not matter in terms of educational level. If you can master these couple of different things, uh, you can become a better negotiator. And it's important to recognize that these aren't tricks. Uh, this is not 12 tricks. This is really looking at five or six strategic decisions that really make a difference, that if you understand the dynamics and you're able to make a really good decision in that moment, the management of that process that is made up of those strategic decisions, you can do it much better and as a result, influence the outcome in your favor. What do you do when the emotions are running high? My technique is let's just hit pause for a day or two. Let me think about this, settle down get the numbers back. And I'm talking about emotions could be anger, could be frustration, could be, boy, I really want this so bad. I'm willing to do anything, even lose a little money on this. That's an emotion that's going to get you in trouble. What's your technique when the emotions are running high? Well, I think emotions can be a significant driver in terms of behavior in this process. They can also become huge barriers. Mm -hmm. And so if they're productive drivers, emotions can be very, very valuable. But if you get to the point where you realize it's becoming a barrier, to the communication or to your ability to productively move through this process, then I think what you have to do is, I like what you said in terms of hit pause on the process, and then you have to negotiate the process. And you've got to have a conversation about how it is that you're going to manage the communication, how it is that you're going to carry forward in the process. And I think you got to put it on the table and say, hey, both of us are very emotionally invested in this. Why don't we take 24 hours or why don't we take a week? And when we come back together, you know, let's make the commitment that we can stay on task. And one of the key things there, and this is part of a popular negotiation book, is this whole notion of separating the people from the problem. And understand that because people get emotional, that it's not necessarily directed at you. It's just a natural reaction. And one of the important things is to not hold grudges, to not uh, judge people because of it, but just to look at it and say, we're both trying to solve a problem here. Yes, there's going to be a human element to it that we have to manage, but we've got to make sure that it doesn't become a barrier. And the way you do that is you negotiate through that as well. And I love this paradigm shift for some people listening, that this is a process. That Absolutely. Just, you have to see it as a process, not a conversation, a process that has multiple facets to it. It reminds me of like back in the day, if you were on a basketball team, the coach made you pass the ball five times before anybody could shoot. Sure. That's a good rule for probably for negotiation too. I will not make a decision until we've gone back and forth at least four times or just make up something just to yeah. force it to actually be a process. Yeah, so many times... Uh, I describe it as people negotiate without a rudder. 
Yeah. And so they're going all over the place, kind of depending on where the conversation goes or what the demands are. Uh, and in doing that, you're not very principled in terms of what you're doing and you're not in control. You know, my background is law. And when you're thinking about litigation, uh, you know, you want to control as much of the process and the discovery leading up to trial as you possibly can, because you recognize the more control you have there, the better chance there is that you're going to deliver a favorable outcome for your right. client. It's right. the same thing in negotiation. And that's where people make a huge mistake is that they get so focused on the outcome that they don't pay enough strategic attention to the process. They get the cart before the horse right. and then they don't ever achieve the outcome they're hoping to. Awesome. You guys, of course, took me a long way in actually negotiating. I mean, my old style was, you know, you say what you want, I say what I want. If I don't like it, I walk away. <laughs> That's yeah, kind of it. Yeah. Instead, it's, you know, different strategies. Let's start the bidding a little bit in my favor to set an anchor point. Let me find out emotionally where you are psychologically, where you are, and see if there's some other value I can offer you that's beyond monetary value. These are great techniques. I'm just teasing the audience right now, but we should get into the five. Sounds good. The first one is that we just have to understand we are all negotiators. Everybody listening to this podcast is a negotiator. You may be a very bad negotiator, but you are a negotiator. Explain what you mean by that. Well, one of the things that we ask people to do, and I'd ask your audience to do it too, is just to pull out a business card. Mm -hmm. And on that business card, there's going to be a title. Uh, it'll be president, it'll be account manager, it'll be owner, it'll be principal, whatever the case might be. And that'll be a really impressive title. And in looking at that title, that shows people where they fall on an organizational chart. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't adequately describe what people do in order to achieve their next level of success or contribute value for their company. The way that that comes is really through negotiation. I define negotiation as a strategic communication process to get a deal or to resolve a problem. Hmm. And we ask that question to people and say, how much of your professional time, what percentage of your week do you spend engaged in a strategic communication process to get a deal or to resolve a problem? And people will typically tell me anywhere from 70 to 100% of their time hmm. is spent engaged in this process. And so what we ask folks to do, and I'd ask your audience to do it too, is to take out a card and cross out the title and to replace it with professional negotiator. Mm -hmm. Because regardless of what you do and regardless of the context in which you do it in, whether it be owning a small business or whether it be working in a large company or whether it be practicing law or whatever the case might be, the reality is all of our success depends on how well we manage this process. Now, what's so interesting, Don, is if you think about that, there's usually a follow-up question that comes in terms of asking people, how much time have you spent engaged in a very formal learning process to better yourself in this process that you manage 70 to 100% of your professional time and that is so critical to your right. success? Right. And most people will say, in fact, less than 10% of them will say that they've ever spent any time at all thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And so taking a couple of days or being very intentional about becoming a more sophisticated negotiator, uh, we think that that can have dramatic impact yep. in terms of people's overall success out there. One of the first things that we understand about negotiation based on your material and your course, this was very eye-opening to me, are that there are really a couple kinds of negotiators, and they have different objectives in mind. There's the competitive negotiator, and then there is the cooperative negotiator. And we need to realize early on in negotiation when somebody is wired as a competitor 
or win somebody as wide as a cooperative negotiator because it totally changes our strategy. Explain to me the difference between, you sometimes call them X and Y when you're actually lecturing on this, but explain to me the difference between a competitive style and a cooperative style. Well, it all has to do in how people approach problems. And some of us, when uh, we find ourselves in a problem or we find ourselves trying to put a deal together, we naturally get a bit more competitive. Uh, that's kind of how we're wired. Mm -hmm. There's others of us that we approach the same problem or we're trying to put the same deal together. And naturally, our approach is to be more cooperative. Right. And the reality is, is that both processes, both approaches can be effective However, both of them have pitfalls as well. So it's like folding your arms, Don. Mm -hmm. uh, if you just fold your arms, uh, there's a natural way that we do it. Some of us have the left arm on top. Some of us have the right arm on top. Right. But the reality is, is there's another way to do it. Uh, right. You can put the right arm on top, but if you do that, it for some feels very awkward and mm -hmm. very uncomfortable. So they just don't do it that way. But the reality is, and where we need to go in terms of thinking about being more sophisticated negotiators, is to recognize that there are some negotiations to where once we recognize that we're dealing with a very competitive person, we've got to strategically respond to how it is that we're dealing with that person. Yeah. Now, many times people make the mistake of thinking, well, I've got to try to change that person. Right. That's too hard. You're not going to change the person across the table. What you have to change is yourself, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And you have to go from doing what is intuitive and what is comfortable and turning in that behavior into something that is strategic. Yep. And so what that means is that people have to know the nature of the game that they're playing. Who is it that they're dealing with? Is it a competitively inclined person or a cooperatively inclined person? Is it someone that's looking for their own win or is it someone that is truly looking for a mutual win? And that's how I understood it was the competitive person really sees every scenario as kind of a win-lose scenario and they intend to win. Absolutely. And you are probably going to lose. The cooperative is a win-win person. They're looking for mutual wins. And it was interesting to me because one of the things, I'm, I'm a win-win guy. I'm looking for a win for my clients. I'm looking for a win for anybody I'm negotiating with, anything with. It was interesting to me that you guys had a pretty judgment-free view of the win-lose guy, which I didn't. I thought, yeah. oh, these win-lose guys. But you said, no, this is a style of negotiating. Uh, they're not lying to you about the fact that you're going to lose. <laughs> you're just willing to lose because you're in a tough position where you're going to lose. And I had forgotten about this, but shortly after that course, I was negotiating a real estate deal or an office kind of thing and realized pretty quickly I'm negotiating the win-lose person. So I changed my style. I no longer thought about how can I help this person win because they're not interested in helping me win. And I wrote down the parts of the deal that I would want. And if I don't get this part of the deal, I'm going to walk away. And sure enough, I didn't get my part of the deal. And so I was able to walk away. Wouldn't have done that with a win-win negotiator. But because I was with a win-lose at the point where I thought this is where I move into personal lose territory, I walked away. And I walked away without judgment. This yeah. is just the kind of negotiator that yeah. they are. And yeah. I didn't lose. You yeah. know, they didn't win. They went on and did that to somebody else. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. There are you know, some people, and if you read a lot of books about negotiation, I mean, there's a lot of ink out there about the win-win approach. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that there are a lot of folks that, like you said, are just not interested in the win-win approach. And so even though that may be a preferred style, the reality is we have to know strategically right. how to deal with the person that doesn't bring that particular approach to the table. Mm -hmm. And so... 
as we think about this, this dynamic of competitive versus cooperative, what I think, Don, is the person who is equipped to get the best deal is the person who knows when to be competitive mm-hmm. and can do it effectively and the person who knows when it's appropriate to be cooperative and can do it effectively, mm-hmm. which means that people have to become much more dynamic to, in their skill yeah, set. You got to exactly. be able to do both. Let me just ask this for practical purposes. Uh, let's say you're a win-win person. You realize you're knee-deep in a deal, and you realize you're with a win-lose person. You're with a competitive person. What are the steps? What are some things that that person, the non-competitive person or the cooperative person, needs to understand going into it? First thing is they need to respond in kind. And so, so if, if they come tough at you, you just got to go tough back. You got to go back. Yeah, because that's the other thing. When you're dealing with a competitive person versus a cooperative person, you're dealing with a win-lose person, they get tough on you. It's intuitive to think, well, I'll just be kind of nice, and then they'll turn around and be nice. They just told you they're not interested. That's not the game they're playing. That's right. And Believe we'll, them. And what will happen is they will take advantage of you. Yeah. And so the more nice you get, as you described it, uh, the more aggressive they will get. They see weakness and they go, oh, this, guy's, go this guy's putty. And so it's counterintuitive, but interestingly enough, and this where negotiation becomes so fun to think about, is the way in which you get someone to become more cooperative with you mm-hmm. is actually to become competitive with them. Mm-hmm. Because remember, they want to win. That's what they're out to do. And you have the ability to cause them to lose. Mm. And so either by walking away from the deal in which no one gets the deal or to demand terms that are very difficult for them to get to. And there is the first moment where you require them to make a strategic decision right. about, do I want to go through this process and end up losing or am I willing perhaps to be a bit more cooperative that is the critical moment that you want to push them into, but it may require you as a negotiator, especially those of us that are more cooperatively inclined to do something that's very uncomfortable, yeah. and that is play that big competitive move. Well, what's interesting is it didn't feel uncomfortable. Once I understood what was really happening, uh, it wasn't bad person versus good person. It's like, oh, this is the style this person is going to use. Therefore, I'm going to use this style back and yeah. match their style. And you raise a really important point that I, I don't want to suggest that people should be jerks to one another and they should go out and just be a a, a pain to everyone. Uh, There is substance and there is style. And so I think that there are ways in which people substantively can be more competitive, but they don't need to change their style. Uh, They can still be a very pleasant person to deal with. They can still be um, a person of integrity, all of those kind of things. They just have to make better decisions in terms of the moves they're making in the negotiation process and perhaps be a bit more competitive there. Okay, another valuable lesson. Let's summarize here. One, we are all negotiators. Two, there are different types of negotiators, competitive and cooperative. And three, this is just the most practical piece of advice. It's going to ring true to everybody as soon as they hear it. The opening offer anchors the entire negotiation. I know what you mean by that, but explain it better than I can. What do you mean? Absolutely. There's multiple benefits to really thinking carefully about the opening offer. In fact, it is the absolute most important move, especially in competitive negotiation. This is what you're doing. This is the first chess move in the game. Absolutely. This is the first number that goes on the table. Mm -hmm. And the conventional wisdom in terms of how to approach this is to let the other side put the number on the table. I challenge that strongly to say this is your most important move 
your most important moment in terms of influencing the other side. Hmm. And that's not one that you want to give away lightly. So many people, they'll have this approach to where they'll say, well, let's go sit down at the table and let's see what happens. Probably not the most strategic way in terms of approaching this opening move. And here's the opportunity in the opening move. Uh, The opening move is, is something that we call an anchor. And by the anchor, just like an anchor in a boat, the boat can only go so far from the anchor, depending on how long the rope is, right? Right. Same thing with the opening offer. Uh, We do an exercise as part of our course that you did, Don, when, when we were together. And it's amazing, after doing that exercise with thousands of people, it's amazing that the first number that gets dropped, almost every deal ends up within $100,000 of that first number. Hmm. And this has a spread of $400,000 in terms of which people can reach an agreement in this Hmm. particular simulation. What it teaches, and it's true out there as well, is that that opening number is going to dictate largely where that deal is going to happen. And so with it being such a strategic move, it's important that we pay attention to it. Now, what it does is in addition to anchoring, in addition to having this gravitational pull, what it also does is it gives us room to move. And the significance there is psychological because if we start out with an opening number and then we're aggressive enough with that opening number and we give ourselves room to make concessions, what happens is, as we make those concessions, the other side feels like they're winning. And the more yeah. they feel like they're winning, the more inclined they are to say yes. And the more value they perceive getting out of the process. It, it actually serves them in that way as well. And what's so interesting about it is it may not have to do with reality. Hmm. The person who made the very aggressive opening offer and then has made some sizable concessions they actually may be conceding to a place that is very favorable for them, even though the other side is perceiving that they are winning. Mm -hmm. And that is really significant in terms of constructing some great deals. Is there some math involved in, you know, let's just say, uh, you know, you're buying a car for your teenager and uh, you want this used Hyundai with really nice airbags (laughs) for uh, five grand. Yeah. Do you have any sort of calculations? As There's you go not a magic that? number because yeah. I think that is. Uh, it's it, contextual. It, it depends on context. You're exactly right. But there are three zones that I think people should think in. Number one is there's kind of a zone of agreement where you have a pretty good idea of where that deal is going to happen. Right. Uh, then from there, there's what's called the credible zone to where you don't expect the other person to say yes. You expect them to push back on that, but it gets the process started. Right. It's the music that begins the dance. Mm-hmm. And then there's an insult zone to where you're so extreme (laughs) that they're not even going to respond. It's not going to get a process started. I remember when we did the exercise in your course, you know, this guy and I partnered up and he opened with a number and I said, well, I think we're done. (laughs) I'm I'm out. Yeah. He's in the insult zone, (laughs) And he just sort of, yeah, he sort of bowed his head and said, can I start over? But yeah, the insult zone I'm going to stay out of, but it is a little bit of an intuitive thing to understand what's credible and where the target agreement zone is. That's right. And that's where people's experience factors in. Mm, Uh, So, you know, especially in the context of business, people have great experience with those deals because they're doing those deals a lot. And not any one of them is exactly the same because it's different clients all the time, right. but, but they have a good sense of kind of where that is. Uh, what we recommend is that people, as best they can, 
be as aggressive in the credible zone as possible to where they can get a process started, but they can give themselves room to make some concessions and still strike a very favorable deal. Yeah. And it can we, go back five or six times. Can absolutely. So in, in the United States, the average number of moves that parties will make in a negotiation is three. Um, and so that's an average. And uh, many times it's more than that. Sometimes it's, it's less than that. Uh, but the power of the opening offer is this, Don, and this was a, a client that we were working with, a technology software company, a small firm. They had a sales team of about 30 people or so. And we got to this point where I was talking about opening offers and these folks were pushing back. They were saying, hey, look, our market is extremely saturated. We've got to be the low number, not the high number. If we're the high number, we're going right. to lose deals. Right. Uh, this is a game. Uh, it's circling to the bottom uh, mm-hmm. in terms of price point and margin and things like that. And finally, after we had this conversation for a half hour or so, the vice president of sales got up out of the back of the room and he walked forward and he said, all right, look, folks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a 90 day pilot project. He says, "Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to work up your proposals just like you otherwise would. And before you hit print or before you hit send on that email, I want you to add 10% to the number. And they said, well, what is it about 10% that's so significant? And he said, just call it our desire for profit. Uh, <laughs> but the reality is we want to grow the business. That's right. what we're charged with. And in order to do that, we've got to think about how we manage this process right. that allows us to do it. And so they were very skeptical, but he said, look, if this blows up, blame me. I ask you to do it. Uh, but if it works, you're going to get higher commissions. So you're incentivized to give it a run. So over the course of that 90 days, they did that. They asked for 10% more on the same products and the same services and everything else that they would otherwise do. And after the end of that 90 days, that company grew 3%. Hmm. Now, what's significant about that is that company did nothing different in terms of its marketing. It did nothing different to position its product. It didn't do anything to try to expand its client base. All it did was it managed this opening offer moment more strategically. There was 3% growth for that company just in that one move. Hmm. That's the opportunity here that we try to help people see. There's some real benefit if we can manage this moment better. Okay, well, continuing on this idea of setting prices and psychological dynamics, we want to open with a higher or lower bid, depending on what we're trying to accomplish. There's also a way that we can really win a negotiation but we can make this person feel terrible in the process by not continuing to negotiate on price. Explain that. You call it the winner's curse. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so it's the moment where, again, like I said, people are looking for the deal. And so here's the moment where if you don't set the process up right to where you have something to give, um, there's a moment where that can become a challenge because they don't feel like they're getting anything for it. Now, the other way in which you can create a challenge is if you're so anxious to get a deal and they're a competitive negotiator that needs a deal, notice that they need you to say no because that's the only way that they know that you have reached your bottom. Right. And so if you turn around and they say, okay, it's got to be this, here's my demand, and you say, sure, I can do that. Well, (laughs) you've just created confusion in them because notice they're looking for you to push back. Uh, they're looking for they're you looking for to be resistant. And by you saying yes really quick, now you've caused them to think, oh, man, could I have gotten more? That's right. And they feel actually worse about the deal. And this oftentimes is 
is the mistake that the cooperatively inclined person makes in competitive right. negotiation is they think they're doing a favor by saying yes, when in fact all they're doing is they're creating psychological dissatisfaction because there wasn't that give and take. That's a good point. I think we're dancing around something that we've all experienced, right? But can you put some street clothes on it and tell us what this would look like in real life? Yeah, let me tell you about buying my first car for my wife. Uh, <laughs> this was an, an interesting moment to where I graduated law school. She had just done her MBA. She had this old beater 1991 Honda Accord that had 200,000 miles on it. I don't even think the brake lights worked anymore. She finally came to me and was like, John, do you think it's time that we yeah. actually <laughs> go buy a car? And so I relented and said, yeah, let's go do that. And she already had a car picked out, believe it or not. And so... I told her, I said, okay, Saturday, let's, let's see if we can make this happen. And Saturday morning, I started calling every Acura dealership in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. She was really right. interested in this little Acura TSX. So I was calling these dealerships, and I was asking them to give me the best price that they could over the phone. And I told them that I would go in, and I would negotiate the deal for the car with the dealer that would give me the best price over the phone. And so three or four of the dealers said, nah, I'm not interested. We're not playing this game. But I got two or three of the dealerships going back and forth. Finally, we had a winner. And I went down to this dealership and I walked in and I ran into a guy named Marshall, who's the guy I've been talking to on the phone. Right. Marshall was the winning bidder. He gave me the lowest price over the phone. But I walked in and I said, Marshall, you know, one of the challenges I have here is your competitors down the street, they say you're lying to me. They say you got a trick up your sleeve. They say there's no way you can sell me the car for the price that you quoted over the phone, that this is a bait and switch moment where you're just trying to get me in here. In order for me to do this deal, I got to know that I'm getting the best deal and I need you to take another $500 off the price of the car. And he looked at me and he said, John, I'm already lowest price in town. Why would I do that? I said, because I need to feel like I'm getting the best <laughs> price in town. That's important. So he says, all right, well, give me a minute. So he goes, he comes back and uh, a few minutes later, he says, Mr. Lowry, if, if we need to put another $500 in this deal to get your business today, we can do it. Which tells you they probably could go lower. Which tells me there's more. <laughs> and so in that moment, I said, okay, they're going to try to hit me on the trade-in. And so I told him, I said, I need $3,500 for the trade-in. He took a few minutes. He came back after he appraised the car. And he said, Mr. Lowry, I can give you $3,500 for your trade-in. Now, there's the moment where the cooperative person they breathe a sigh of relief. But right. for the competitively inclined person, notice how they he starts found to- found a boundary. He's starting to make me nervous, right? So I was like, oh, he's going to get me on the financing. Well, I kind of thought I had the trump card and that I've already been pre-approved and all that kind of stuff. I said, I've got 4.7% from the credit union. If you can beat it, I'll do the deal. And so he comes back and he says, Mr. Lowry, with your credit, we can finance you at 4.3%. Notice he's just feeding into this psychological dynamic that is not wanting me to do the deal. It's making me resistant not to serving, the deal. It's not serving you because you're feeling like, even though you're getting a great deal, you're feeling like somehow you're getting ripped off here. Absolutely. So here was the moment where I was stuck, Don, because I had nothing more to negotiate. <laughs> but I was not going to do this deal because Until I felt awful bottom. about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I asked my wife to get the accessories book and to pick something out. And it was a great moment where she was like, we don't need anything in this. Like this car's loaded. And I said, I don't care. Just pick it out. We're not going to stop until he stops us. Exactly. And so literally we, I told him, I said, Marshall, we got to have the trunk mat in the car. And I kid you not, five minutes later, Marshall comes walking out with the daggum trunk mat under his arm. 
He That's fed awesome. right into it even more. <laughs> Finally, after I asked Melissa, I said, pick something else out. Finally, we got to a moment where she was like, the fog lights. We need the fog lights on that car. <laughs> of course you do. And so I remember going to Marshall and saying, Marshall, uh, you know, we need fog lights on the car. And I remember him looking at me going, Mr. Lowry, like we're in Dallas, Texas. What are you talking about? Fog lights. Like there's no fog here. But what he ultimately said was, Mr. Lowry, uh, that's a $700 job. I can do it for 350 bucks. And I finally got what I needed. Yeah. I got my no. Yeah. And so delivering that no early that can be tremendously helpful in terms of delivering the psychological. And you're not just saying side. I'm not willing to go there. You're saying this is now the best deal you can get and you should feel good about it. That's right. When you stop the negotiation. That's right. Okay. This is great stuff, John. One, we are all negotiators. Two, there are different types, cooperative and competitive. Three, the opening offer anchors the negotiation. And we talked a lot about psychology of pricing and negotiation in that segment. Four, we need to go below the line. And you talk about how human beings are not completely rational people. We're not rational creatures. And there's also some other components, not just price and how big is the land going to be and all this kind of stuff, but what's going on emotionally behind the scenes with this person that I'm negotiating with. And you say there's a great benefit to going below the line of rational and into some emotional and psychological territory. Absolutely. And so as a result of that, it's really thinking about uh, how is it that we transition away from positions? So usually when there's an issue, whether it's a source of conflict or we're trying to put a deal together, there's going to be an issue. There's going to be questions that need to get answered. Price, term, amount, quality, scope, all of those things are issues. And those are questions that need to get answered. And usually what happens is that you're going to have people that take positions on those issues. The buyer wants it to cost less and the seller wants it to cost more. Right. And typically what happens if you don't have sophisticated negotiators at the table is it really becomes an argument about who's right on the issue. And sometimes you can make compromises and reconcile that. Sometimes you can't. And for unsophisticated negotiators, the conversation ends there. But there's a whole nother direction that if you're thinking in a really sophisticated way that you can take the conversation that can be really helpful. That's the whole notion of going below the line. So what exists below the line, as we call it, is this whole idea of interest. These are the intangible things that drive people to take positions. This is what they're trying to achieve with their position. And so to give you some examples, Don, these are things like ego. These are things like fears. These are things like morals or principles or values. It could be circumstances. It could be relationships. And usually when you get down to that level, it's amazing how there can be a whole lot of disagreement above the line when we're thinking about our positions and how we've articulated them at the table. But once we get below the line and begin to understand what we're trying to achieve and the other side's trying to achieve, it's amazing how much alignment there is yeah. there. And the opportunity to construct a deal based upon what aligns us, as opposed to just arguing about what divides us, there's tremendous opportunity 
that I think too many people miss because they don't have that skill set or they aren't aware of this whole other conversation that can take place. How do you find out what's beneath the line for the person that you're negotiating with? I mean, what are some techniques just to understand the whole story about why they're selling the land or why they want to sell the car or why they want to buy this product from you? How do you find that out? Do you, do you just sit down and have a conversation with them, or are there some strategic questions? Absolutely. It comes through communications. Number one is it, it takes leadership to go below the line. Right. Because what you're asking people to put on the table is things that make them vulnerable and things that are very personal to them. And so it requires a little rapport, and it requires being intentional about having that conversation. The way that the conversation takes place, it starts with asking open-ended questions. Help me understand tell me about. You want people to be comfortable to put information on the table. Then from there, it's really important that we listen and that we listen, especially for the unstated. Mm -hmm. So for example, it's really hard for someone to say, Hey Don, I just got a really big ego and I got to beat you today. I mean, that's not going to happen. Right. Right. But that, but that's going to come out, but that may be what's driving them. Right. And so you've got to be listening for the unstated. And then once that happens, it's important to get creative and to think creatively about, okay, how can I take these interests and how can I problem solve with them? And how can I do that with the other person? And here's the moment where we begin to be collaborative with them in terms of how we're gonna put this deal together or resolve this problem. And then once you are creative and you kind of can brainstorm some options, then this is the moment where you can begin to develop those options to see what you're doable, and then you can evaluate them. And the way that you evaluate the options is you determine which option best satisfies our interest and best satisfies the interest of the other side. And that's usually going to lead you to a very durable agreement. It sounds like there's just a lot bigger scorecard than the one we would normally go into thinking this negotiation is about this number on the scoreboard, and you've just expanded the scoreboard. What does a win look like for this person? Why are they burdened with whatever this is and want to get it off their chest or out of their portfolio or something like that? Understanding more of that allows us not only to get the price that we want, but also deliver much more value to them in terms of them feeling like they won in these five categories, when really the price is the only thing that we might have gone in thinking about you're treating human beings like human beings. You're going to it holistically. Is that right? That's right. And negotiation always happens between people. And that's really important to remember. The people represent companies, they represent businesses, but they're people and they have human interest. And it's important to tap into those. There's great opportunity there in terms of delivering some outstanding outcomes. Okay. One, we are all negotiators. Two, There are competitors and cooperative kinds of negotiators. Three, the opening offer anchors the bid. Four, go below the line. And finally, fifth, uh, we want to understand the satisfaction triangle. That is what makes for a satisfactory, we love the process, we love the result of the process. There are three aspects to having a satisfactory negotiation. What are they? So here's our target. This is what we're trying to achieve with this process. And At the end of the day, we want our clients to be satisfied. We want our business partners to be satisfied. Uh, We want the people, our employees to be satisfied. What we're trying to achieve is satisfaction. It's really important that as negotiators, we understand what generates satisfaction with people. The unsophisticated person thinks that satisfaction comes through the product. And the reality is, is that satisfaction is much more dynamic than just the product. Uh, There are three aspects to satisfaction, which is why we call it the satisfaction triangle. One is process. People have a great need for procedural satisfaction. 
many times there are problems and people don't necessarily have an issue with what's happened substantively, but they will have strong reactions to the process in which it was dealt with. It's a reflection of our need for procedural satisfaction. Then there's also satisfaction in the people component. People want to be treated well. They want to be honored. They want to have their egos protected, as we've talked about. And so how we treat people in this is very, very important. And then lastly, there has to be some satisfaction with the product. But what's interesting and what I've seen studying this process and spending a lot of time with very, very sophisticated negotiators is that they understand something. And what they understand is that true success comes from the process and the people components, not the product component. Hmm. And if we can master the process and in doing that, we can treat people really, really well. It's amazing how many times we're able to work out a problem or we're able to deliver a product that is satisfactory. And so that's the element of negotiation that I think is really important for people to consider is how is it that they can become more sophisticated in the process how is it that they can actually treat people better? Mm. It's going to lead to better results for them. Well, John, this has been absolutely terrific. I think it's one of our more practical and better interviews we've ever done on the podcast. Listen to it again and again. Become a master negotiator because, quite honestly, there are high stakes. So you could either make or lose hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, or either get the trunk mat for your car or not. So things are <laughs> things are <laughs> things are real. This is really important stuff. John's course is called Negotiation Navigator, and uh, he teaches it several times a year. You can find out more about where you can take that course and when at LowryGroup.net. L-O-W-R-Y Group.net. John, it has been an honor to have you. Don, I've had a great amount of fun. This has been great. Well, it's time to transition into a segment we call How They Do It, where we interview a story brand alumni, yeah. either somebody who has been to our live workshop, experienced our private facilitation, or has registered for the online course, clarified their message, and suddenly got seen, heard, and understood in the marketplace. And this week's interview is a blast. Yeah. Renee Kimball. Tell yep. us about Renee. Well, Renee did our online course because she lives in Panama. So getting to Panama. the United States for a live version was not the easiest thing. Yeah. So she lives in Panama, and she runs a lodge called Tranquilo Bay. And it's a place you can go down with your family. It's a hotel. You can go on ecotourism down that there. sounds like a blast. Yeah. No, no, no. I say this a lot, I think, that when we <laughs> talk to people, but it's like, we're going there. Like, we're going it's there. It's research. Yes, it is research. We have to go. Um, I talk about something that I'm very excited about in it that you'll have to listen to about a little pet, my new best friend. Um, <laughs> but you can go see iguanas. You can, I mean, it's pretty amazing. So yeah. they went through the course. They slashed a ton of language off of their website. Don't you love it when our our clients yeah, do that. Just edited like All crazy. Those paragraphs. And just one little thing that she talked to me about is that over last January, so if this January to last January, they are up 30% in bookings. In 12 months, they are up 30% well, in bookings. And she only started doing this this summer. They went through the online course this summer, changed things around. So and, in six months. Yeah. In six months, this January over last January is 30% more in bookings. That is awesome. Yeah. 
I mean, that's bottom line stuff. That's yeah. give your employees raises. That's you get to take more time off. That's yeah. you get to put money back into your company. That's on and yeah. on. And people that go there have an amazing experience. Oh, so, man. Um, we got to so, go. Yeah, we're going to Panama. <laughs> <laughs> so that's happening. So this is my interview with Renee Kimball from Tranquilo Bay. And you can check them out at tranquilobay.com. Good afternoon, Tranquilo Bay. Hey, Renee, it's JJ from StoryBrand. Hi, JJ. It's good to hear from you. Good to hear from you as well. I just need you to know that I'm coming to Panama. You just can be <laughs> expecting me to be knocking on your door any minute because from your website alone, I'm hooked. I'm in. <laughs> awesome. That's what we're trying to do. So that works out Yay. great. I, I'm a big travel guy and you have me. So just be prepared to have me knocking on your door very soon. <laughs> we would like that very uh, much. Yay. So tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. Well, my husband and I and our business partner, Jay, own Tranquilo Bay. And it's a small eco-adventure lodge in Boca del Toro, Panama. And uh, we focus on unique adventures in nature. Our staff support our guests so that the guests truly have a vacation that they love. We'll take information from the guests coming in, collect it as it's coming along, and then our staff will, in effect, curate the opportunities we have here for the guests once they arrive. Oh, wow. And can you answer me this? When I come down, not if, when I come down, will I be able to see a sloth? Yes. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there are not that many things that I can guarantee, but a sloth is definitely one of the is ones it? that I feel oh, comfortable See, saying, yes. I knew it. This is the place for me. <laughs> <laughs> you guys went through the online version because you're in Panama. So coming up to the United States is not quite um, as feasible as for maybe people who are here. So you guys went through the online version, yeah? Correct. That is correct. I started with the online version in May of this year uh -huh. and went through all of the materials very quickly uh -huh. <laughs> um, so that I could get everything completed in between kind of seasons for us. Yeah, get everything up. So by the summer, you were having stuff up and changed on your website and marketing. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so you went through it in a couple days. And what were some of the things that really jumped out at you through the process? What are the big takeaways you had? So a big takeaway is to position yourself as the guide. Yep. I mean, that I, I've studied story with my kids. They did a story class last year. And even with that, I hadn't taken away truly being the guide, which is funny given that we are guides for people when they come down here, yes. yet it wasn't <laughs> the kind of thing that I would was putting into our documentation. Uh-huh. And so that was a huge thing. And then the other is to look at things a little bit differently. We have a number of different types of clients that come down here. And for mm -hmm. some of them, you need a lot of scientific information. Uh -huh. But that's not who's looking at the website. Yeah. On the website, I'm selling to mom and dad. Yeah. And when mom and dad are looking for a vacation, they want to know they're going to have a vacation they'll love. Yep. And so we needed to change the text for when we're selling to mom and dad so that it's easy. Mm -hmm. Those two things, being the guide and then making it easy on everybody and, and how your brain thinks a little bit differently and, and not making the brain tired when they're going yeah. through your website. 
Yep. Were big things for us. Yeah, because everybody is looking for, we talk about in StoryBrand, everybody is looking for ways to survive and thrive. And when we can communicate in a way very clearly that helps them survive and thrive, even for parents who are looking for a way to thrive with their families and be the heroes to their children on taking them on an amazing vacation, when you can communicate that clearly, you're going to get higher engagement. And, and we have. We've oh, seen definitely a difference. Yeah. So you went through and you made the changes. What are some of the things that you have seen as a result of changing this on your website? Um, as a result, we have seen an increase in bookings for the first quarter of 2017. The first quarter is generally our busiest quarter. People uh-huh. are traveling between December and April. And uh-huh. so first quarter and the beginning of the second quarter are, are our busiest. Uh-huh. So we've seen an increase in that. I'm looking at a 30% increase in <laughs> occupancy for January. And there are a number of things that, that contribute to that. Yeah, the yeah. Story Brand definitely is a large part of that, oh, of that, that. increase. We went to StoryBrand trying to increase our individual traveler numbers because mm-hmm. we work with groups and other things as well. Yeah. And so that 30% is overall, but even with that, if I take my number from 2015 and just the number of individual travelers I have for January, it's a 10% increase. Oh, I love so it. We're, we're happy with it. The other thing that's coming across really nicely is in the past, I used to have to do a lot of explaining uh-huh. on a follow-up basis when we were doing bookings. And based on what we have on the website now, I don't have to explain as much. Yes. I've gone through the process of cleaning it all up and making it much easier for people to understand what we have, what we offer, and how we can guide them through a really unique vacation. And so that part of the process is a lot easier. So my day-to-day is much easier, even when I'm interacting with people trying to set up their vacation. As we're talking, I'm just looking at the slides on your webpage and it's just making me so happy that more people are getting to experience hanging out in hammocks, kayaking, snorkeling, (laughs) being with baby sloths that that just like, I know with everybody that deals with the rat race kind of life up here, it's not just that they get a great trip, but what I love is people are actually going to be able to relax. They're going to be able to do fun things with their family and their lives are literally going to be better because they experience time at Tranquilo Bay. I love it. It just makes me very, very happy. I'm so excited for you. <laughs> well, thank you. It makes <laughs> us happy too. We always, at this point in our podcast, when we're talking with alumni who've gone through, ask just for any tips that you have for people for their own marketing. Um, what kind of tips would you give based on your experience? What would you give people listening to our podcast? I would say to edit ruthlessly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. That's, I mean, really, that's been the one thing for us. We we had a lot of text on our website. Mm-hmm. For a number of reasons, um, so that people would know it was all there, so that Google could use it for all of its purposes. But when it came down to it, people weren't reading it. Yeah. And so it was just so much, and it was in a form that they didn't seem to be taking things away from it. Yeah. So that now, at least on our main pages, there are certain pages where we do have more scientific information. Yeah, yeah. That's the way it should be. Yep. But on the other pages where it's the basics, I like the way in in all of the information with StoryBrand, you talk about being on a first date versus a second date or yep. a third date. Mm-hmm. And so to me, anything that is kind of first date yeah. has to be edited ruthlessly. Yes, yes, 100%. Get it down to where it's the very, very basics 
And if they want more information, they'll ask for it. If you put too much, they're going to go on to the next website. Yeah. And isn't that so interesting? Because what our natural inclination is, is to go, oh, people need more information. But the reality is, is when you gave less information, now you're saying it actually changed the way that you communicate with people so that it saves you time because it's more clear. People now know more when you put less on the website because they get it. That's absolutely correct. Oh, I love it. Well, Renee, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today and for introducing me to my new best friend, a sloth. Um, I'm, that's a preemptive <laughs> thank you. I know it's coming. Like, it's just, it, it's happening. It's happening. I'm coming down. Um, and my new best friend is going to be a baby sloth. I'm convinced. Well, there you go. Sounds fabulous. We look forward to having you. All right. Thanks so much. And good luck with all you are doing and everything in this next coming year. All right. Thank you, JJ. Take care. All right. Thanks, Renee. Bye-bye. JJ, that was awesome. It makes me want to go. <laughs> right? That sloth will be my new best friend. I will just tell you that right now. I'm ready to go. And guess what? What? You're going to pay. Oh. And it has to do with my brother and emotional stuff. So you're paying. Right? Is that how this works? Well, here's the thing. I think you should pay... And, um, Panama, (laughs) Panama, going below the line. Don't think, don't think, just feel, just feel, get on the plane. Panama. (laughs) I don't know if that's in John Lowry's course or not. Well, listen, next week we have an amazing interview with a guy named Don Schneider. The topic of next week's podcast is marketing versus branding. Yes. We really help you here with your marketing. Clarify your message. Make sure people Mm -hmm. know exactly what you're offering and why they would need it. There's also this other world of branding, and branding has more to do with the way people feel about your company. As your company grows, Rose, I think you need to do both marketing and mm-hmm. branding. It was a complete honor for me to have a conversation with a guy named Don Schneider. And he came by the Story Brand office and we got a long conversation. This one was actually really hard for us to trim down. But he talks so about what you need to think about when people think about your brand and that we are human beings, we're complicated creatures, and when somebody interacts with your brand, there may be things that you are doing that are just turning people off and they're having negative associations with your brand. You don't even know you're doing it. And how do you create these positive associations? And how do you enter into that creative space where you let your imagination go and work and have fun and then somehow wrangle it in to benefit your brand? It's a fascinating process. And this guy is one of the world's absolute best. Again, his name is Don Schneider. You may not have heard of him, but you've definitely seen his work. Listen to this little clip from next week's episode of the Building a Story Brand podcast. If I create that spot where where we we say Jimi Hendrix wouldn't have been Jimi Hendrix without Pepsi, total bull, we're making it up. (laughs) But people who saw that inside say, I like those guys who told that story. Hmm. And they don't even know why. And it, it's not instant ROI. This is a, this is a long term. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- if you continue telling those stories in a way where they go, I like those guys telling that story. Yeah. What, what it is is when they're at the cooler there, they actually feel an affinity for the brand. Hmm. And they don't know why, but they're reaching for it. And that's what we tried to do. We did very little hard sell. We wanted people out there to feel like we get their sense of humor Hmm. because when you tell someone I get your sense of humor you're saying I get you and if I'm a, a consumer and you're a brand and you get me I like you 
All right, if that sounds interesting to you and you want to work on the branding as it's associated with your products and services, definitely pay attention next week to the podcast. Music from this episode is from Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. Live from an airplane to Panama, (laughs) JJ and I are signing off. We may never see you again. Here I come, Henry. Panama! (laughs) 